Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to another episode. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And I'm excited today to bring back a guest I've had before on the podcast to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my own heart. That is Mike Collins, and he's going to talk about sugar addiction, the impact of sugar addiction, and how to work through that process and get away from sugar addiction. So I'm excited to have him back. He's straight to the point and talks directly about it and shares his own story about how sugar impacted his own life when he started recovery. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we start, think about leaving us a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. And you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I'm excited to have back on Mike Collins, and he's going to talk about one of my favorite topics, sugar addiction. Mike. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody call it their fave, one of their favorites. Yeah, I got no. <laughs> well, yeah. it's a, it's always a worry for, especially people in the recovery movement. It's, uh, you know, they get off alcohol and drugs and they're like, wait a minute, this sugar stuff is acting just like the drugs. Exactly. I, I think that's why uh, I, I, I guess I enjoy this topic. I don't know. Well, I, I think most of us become, at least I did, a, a recovery anthropologist. You know, we, we, you know, we, we want to learn more about this addiction thing, right? Yeah. I do. I've always been fascinated with it, even though it was a pain in the early days. You know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think most people who get into recovery at some point, food, sugar, those kind of things become some kind of issue in their life. Maybe not everybody, but for a lot of people, that's like a secondary feel good mechanism when you're not feeling great. Absolutely. I mean, personally, and you know, what's happened since, you know, your part last time we were on your podcast and I've done a bunch of addiction podcasts and I've run across a group of people who are in recovery, drugs and alcohol, who have struggled with the sugar. And it's a really, I mean, not a small minority either of the folks that are in our groups and stuff. They're, 
you know, they literally did the old substitute one for the other thing. They went yeah. right back to sugar. And if you look at it like the way I do and believe and, you know, what I think over, you know, thousands of detoxes now and long-term people too, is that it was the original gateway drug. I think I told you about on the last one, the the great quote from Eric Clapton when he was talking with uh, Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes, right? He's like, they're sitting in a $7 million Antigua treatment center. And Ed Bradley says, Eric, so this uh, addiction thing started with heroin, right? And he goes, no, Ed, it started with sugar. Wow. He said, I would change my state eating bread and butter and sugar sandwiches at five and six years old, anything to change my state. Yep. And that's, we actually ate bread and, I actually ate bread and butter and sugar sandwiches. I don't know who taught me that. It was by my mother. Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't till I ran into beer that I knew something was changing my state, right? But right. then when I got sober, I went right back to the sugar in massive amounts. And I think right. a lot of people in recovery do that. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening there that is going on in, in the brain when we ingest you know, refined, I, I want to say refined carbohydrates, because they're, to me, they're also sugar too, yep. in, in a way. So what's going on there? Why is this so appealing? And why do some people so much struggle with it that it causes problems in their life? Well, I mean, I think it was kind of up to date when we talked last, but even in the last two years or however long it's been, and definitely in the last five years, the, the science, the brain science around this has exploded. Now, the anecdotal cure that Food Addiction Recovery Anonymous and a few of the offshoots of OA, not OA itself, because they, they, they let you name your own abstinence, but the ones who say no flour, no sugar, those programs, there's a bunch of them. They have anecdotally in dusty church basements come to a solution to this, right? But now we know why. The brain science has come so far in five years that we know that the nucleus accumbens, the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, adrenal glands, oxytocin, even your endorphins, all these things are affected by sugar and I mean, literally, I'm getting really hard on this lately. People are not in a mental state to even make the correct decisions about this product until they detox. I mean, the food industry has weaponized this knowledge that they literally slide people into MRIs and watch their brains light up like drugs and alcohol in the same place to see how that product affects that nucleus accumbens, you know? And that knowledge, that knowing that people are becoming addicted, children are becoming addicted to something that took 10 million years to evolve, and now just in the last 30 or 40 years has really accelerated. I mean, it's uh, it's almost criminal, to be honest with you. It's uh, And it's People aren't aware of it. Now, there's a lot of books that have been coming out this year. Michael Moss's new book, Hooked, uh, Dr. Lustig's new book, Metabolical. I mean, they're, you know, deep diving right. deep into the science of why this is happening. And moreover, you know, why people can't stay stopped. You know, they can white knuckle it or exercise it for 30 days. But, you know, after that, they they revert back to what we call their emotional management system, which has been co-opted by sugar. We are literally managing our emotions with a ubiquitous, almost free product that's available anywhere. And right. uh, so I, lo I love podcasts because they the arc time is time enough to set up the story of exactly how this thing operates in the human body, right? How it operates moreover in the brain. Right, right. I hear what you're saying. So these food companies understand the neurological workings of our, our brain and take advantage of that to be able to sell their product. Yeah. I mean, it has that long shelf life. 
So mm-hmm. it's cheap to manufacture. Yeah. And once they get you uh, kind of addicted to it, per se, mm-hmm. um, they can keep selling it to you. And right. what you're saying is it changes your mood. So it's it's not just food. It's yeah. a mood changer. Right. And this is the thing that we have to cleave apart from the $72 billion diet industry. We've all been brainwashed for decades now that a calorie is a calorie and that it somehow doesn't affect other parts of the brain and body. Right. We have to separate, you called earlier, hyper palatable foods and sugar from real food and know that, you know, we can easily put the plug in the jug and walk away from the alcohol. You're not going to be worried that it might be in our food, right? Drugs as well. But sugar, 80% of the, or 74, I don't know, every, but the numbers vary, but over 70% of the food products on the grocery store shelves contain added sugar. And they do it for just the reasons you mentioned, so that they keep us coming back. And they are addicting us younger and younger as well. So when someone ingests some of this food product, mm-hmm. right, if, if you want to call it that, I've heard of it referred to as like a, a product, drug not food. really food. A, drug food, yeah. <laughs> yeah, drug food. So the nucleus accumbens is lit up in that. Absolutely. And that's where that dopamine rush or that what Eric Clapton was saying earlier, that shift in mood. Mm-hmm. happens when you ingest this kind of sugar. Right, exactly. And and like what's happening is you're getting like an entire day's worth of dopamine in a 20-minute period with a Coke and a candy bar, right? It's like you're just it's just blasting and you feel and I want to mention that this is important because people say, I, I don't get a buzz on that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you're not getting a buzz. You're just, when you get to be an adult, you're just fighting off withdrawals. You're just trying like regular drugs to get back to even. You're just right. like, I just don't want to feel bad today. I don't have time. I got kids. I got a meeting. I got that and that. You know, I got to stay even. You know, I got to met, self-medicate these withdrawals and keep them at bay. And anybody that's had any habit who tries to give it up knows that there are some physical withdrawals and, you know, like it's not heroin withdrawals for goodness sakes, think nicotine, but it's an annoying few days. And some people have got a big habit. I mean, if you quit flour, sugar, and caffeine at the same time and you had any habit at all, day three and four, you're going to be incapacitated. You're not going to be able to work, think interact you're going to be wanting to sleep and drink water and you know right i i was reading some current research on this uh, on about sugar and the gut biome mm-hmm. and how even when you stop eating these refined carbohydrates these these kind of processed foods that are on the shelves everywhere that even the gut biome has to start to shift and change and adapt to not having this product in in the body. Yeah, absolutely. I've been reading more and more about, you know, nine, I mean the numbers I'm hearing are 95% of the serotonin is produced in the gut, not the brain. Right. And we have to readjust, right? Because serotonin is I mean you heard of SSRIs, right? This is what people take for depression and stuff that doctors try and quote unquote dial in. Now dial in means like I can't drink too much or take too much speed. I can't be too speedy and I can't get too drunk. It's like we're trying to self-medicate, right? And what we do with the sugar and the flour and the caffeine is we try and self-medicate our our own serotonin uptake. And uh, you've heard of doctors trying to dial in their SSRIs. They'll they'll have this. So we'll take the half a pill. We'll take one pill. Let's add celebrate. Let's add you know. Let's like keep like playing with it till we get the dose right. They actually say this, right? Right, right. And so what we do all day, what humans, uh, Americans, and all around the world is, we do this quasi unconsciously with the almost free and ubiquitous sodas and candies and sugars in our life right yeah yeah oh yeah it's a it's constant it's just never ending 
You know, you can't go into a big meeting without one and a half cups of coffee. It's like you wouldn't dare because you're just not your brain. You feel like you're the cobwebs haven't been cleared in the morning. Right. And mm -hmm. so whatever, whatever the circumstance is, that's an example. But, you know, there's just a, a lot of ways that we self-medicate and self-soothe with these products. And really, when you think about it, when we were growing up, you know, your kid, your mom was busy or whatever. She, you know, you were crying. Instead of getting down on your level, giving you a hug, she says, you know, gives you a cookie and says, it'll be okay, dear. So not only are, you know, we doing it to ourselves after our mom trains us this way, but I mean, when was the last time you saw a movie where a woman got dumped by her boyfriend, didn't have an ice cream party? I mean, it's right. truly a cultural norm. And I think that kind of says something to that unconscious part that says, hey, I know this sugar will change how you feel. Here it is. It's pleasurable. It shifts everything. I mean, we kind of know that already, if that makes sense. It's like just part yeah. of our culture, but it's right. also biologically correct, if that makes sense. It does change your mood. So if you're having yeah. a bad day and you go to that substance, you're yeah. going to feel better in that moment. Or you get that dopamine rush when you bite into that cookie or eat that right. ice cream or you right. know whatever it is, whatever kind of sugar you're, you're doing. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, this is when the science is starting to play a huge role. I mean, this is where um, exactly what you said is now being proven and documented um, in right. animals and in humans that we are. And it, the new studies come out every single day now of uh, the reasons and why and what's going on with the brain, with the reward systems, with the dopamine, serotonin, and all the other feel-good chemicals are now, you know, we're just getting better science to be able to gauge and measure these things and watch them with MRIs. Yeah, and, and hopefully be able to help find some solutions to that as well, you know, to be able to help people who are really stuck there in that sugar addiction. Yeah. And that's the, you know, hard part because mostly culturally, you know, for 300 years, everything from birth to death is celebrated with a sugar type product and that morally, ethically, legally, you can give this product to a one-year-old today and 90% of people wouldn't have any thoughts or worries about it, right? Right. And so yeah. this tectonic shift of uh, awareness, if you will, is really, really important. Like the anti-stigma movement in the drug and alcohol world, it, it's like we just need to make people aware of what's going on. And, you know, sugar addiction is not in the DSM yet. In other words, the diagnostic manual for maladies and, you know, the work at the Food Addiction Institute is trying to get that done. You know, behind the scenes, I'm seeing the applications at both there and the World Health Organization. And there's so many, I mean, the litany of proof that we have to produce to get that done has been unbelievable, right? right. And still, they just don't, you know, they're not accepting it. But I always tell people, spend five minutes in my inbox, five, five minutes on my instant messenger. You'll see the pain out there. People 100 and 200 pounds overweight, losing limbs, going blind. And doctor says, you're going to die this year if you don't stop this. And they still can't. You know, so that's right. when they come to us. You know, I mean, and it doesn't just affect those folks. You know, we can all like when we used to drink or drug, we say, oh, love is never as bad as him or her. Right. But the same thing happens. There's a lot of thin sugar addicts. You know, there's yeah. a lot of people that are weight doesn't manifest in their addiction. Right. So yeah, it's a real definitely. complicated problem in society because the culture hasn't caught up with the science, like when seatbelts were came in or we stopped, you know, smoking because the science finally says this, this stuff's killing you. 
you know? Yeah. And, you know, I've also read a lot of uh, research about like intermittent fasting and, and controlling blood sugars in, in, in that way. And also how these foods affect hormones that mm. drive behavior, you know, like a lot of times, some of the studies that I've, I've read, read about is that, you know, you have like ghrelin and leptin and these control your behavior. And when you're consuming large amount of sugar, your body is putting this uh, hormone out that mm. really drives your behavior. And until you shift that, it becomes really, really hard to even uh, stop the process, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. You combine that with the, the brain stuff and you got a perfect storm. And the blood sugar dysregulation is the name for what you're describing is really some of the fastest growing science that's happening out there. And I divide it into two things. One, and for your audience, I'm sure a lot of them know, but the table sugar molecule is half glucose and half fructose, right? And we've all right. known what the glucose is doing to our body, what you're talking about, blood sugar dysregulation, diabetes, you're calling Alzheimer's diabetes three. And I think the world changes on uh, what's called uh, continuous glucose monitors. There's uh, rumblings that possibly the Apple Watch 7 will have a non-invasive monitor in it. And I think I've the whole that. world... Yeah, the whole world changes around non-invasive, you know, when the price drops to the price of a Fitbit and everyone has one, then they can just look and you say, well, this donut won't kill me. But then they look at it and the blood sugar goes over 200. They're like, whoa, I got to, you know, it's almost yeah. like a uh, reinforcing kind of a training that you can unconsciously see day in and day out. So you can, you know, stop using these products. But and, and everybody knows what the body's doing to the glucose and how decimating it is to the body. But what I always like to focus on is the fructose part of the molecule, the other half of the molecule. And that's the part that is what, uh, you know, this is a product that has no known positive or useful effect in the body. There's no human bodily function that requires fructose. And I think the small amount that we used to get, like a little bit once a year, evolutionarily, was to make us feel better so that we would eat this fruit and dis you know disperse the seeds, okay? Right, yeah. But now we're pounding 21 teaspoons of this stuff through our nucleus accumbens every day. And this, at the core of my work, is why we can't quit. Like, you've heard the literature where... You know, if someone loses a lot of weight, 90 plus percent of it gain it all back in the first year and then some. And the reason is, is because exactly what we've been talking about, they fall back to that old emotional management system when something difficult comes up during that weight loss journey, a divorce, a death, or just regular everyday stressors. They fall back to the sugar, which is falling back to the fructose, which is helping you know, manually stimulate, like we've been talking, like a drug or an alcohol, and in my world, it is a drug or an alcohol, like it's manually stimulating our reward system so that we feel just a bit better about ourselves and that, you know, we're not going to go take a, a beer or an antidepressant. We're just going to have some comfort food. And the problem, just like drugs and alcohol, is that the problem, whatever the problem is or was, is still there the next day, right? Right. It's a very common known construct, uh, and your audience will know about it if they've been to treatment or even ever been in recovery, is that if you started using drugs or alcohol when you were 14 or 15 years old, you stopped growing emotionally. Your life's a mess, your finances are a mess, your relationships, your career, because you weren't emotionally mature. And it's a very, very well-known concept. But no one, unless you talk, when I, I use this proverbial avatar, this person who's lost 100 or 200 pounds and has kept it off, is truly in sugar and flour and food addiction recovery, that person describes not what they ate, not how they exercise. They describe this emotional recovery process, this process of, for lack of a better term, growing up, 
becoming more emotionally responsible, handling their emotions in a more mature way, take a walk, go to yoga, call a friend, go to a meeting, whatever, handling their emotions in a different way. And when that happens, when they, when, when that thing clicks, when they realize that we're not here to exercise and restrict food, we're here to change how we manage our emotional state. That's when they change. That's when they get well. That's when it starts to work. Right. And I think that makes so much sense because when I look at addiction, I look at it as a primary affect dysregulation issue. And if we go to substances or sugar or something, exactly what you're saying, we we feel better and then we don't deal with the problem. We don't solve the problem. Maybe there's, you know, in solving the problem, there's a lot of fear about solving the problem or anxiety or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to just run to the refrigerator. I know that I've done that in my life, but it's like, just run to the refrigerator and get something to eat. Sure. You know, then I don't have to deal with my problem, at least why I'm eating. You know. Well, yeah, I feel a little bit. I think truly, I mean, this is hard for me to, I really struggle with the words, the articulation of this, but I seriously believe that the universe's most cruel joke was to have made this stuff sweet, first of all. Right. But second of all, that it is, in, in my belief, a perfect drug. In other words, if it were not, and, and for the for the normies, for the people who like a person who can just have half a beer and leave it and never think about it for a month, the person who can have a little sweet, whatever it is, and then forget about it like the same thing for a month or so, it's really a perfect mood leveler. It's a perfect all is right with the world, right? Whether right. it's when you're a little down or whether you're at a party and you want to just make it a little bit more accentuated. It truly is a lift, a bump in self-esteem. And I struggle with actually saying this, but what affects me when I get an accidental ingestation is the same thing that used to happen when I used cocaine. I look into the mirror and the scars on my face, the I look more attractive when I have an accidental, you know, ingestation of sugar from a salad dressing or something, right? It's the same bump in self-esteem that I used to get when I'd snort a couple lines of cocaine, look in the mirror and, you know, feel on top of the world. And, but the right. problem is just like cocaine, that feeling not only is gone in 20 minutes, you're crashing. Like now you're yeah. feeling worse and now I'm ugly to look at. I'm not, I don't want to say ugly, but I don't feel that lift in self-esteem in, in, in feeling all is right with the world. And this is just my experience. And I think that if people would really play with like how they're feeling when they ingest and journal it out, and that's how we help people cure or, or change, is they realize that the feelings were the thing that was leading, not the desire, the craving for a sweet treat, but the desire to just bump the feeling a little bit or a lot if you're going to binge. And then you're like, you know, it lasts an hour or so while you're binging, but then again, it, the crash is harder. So again, that I, sounds a little druggy, but I think you understand what I'm saying. I can totally, totally relate to that experience as well. And, and being able to really pay attention to those emotions and you can watch those things shift. Maybe it's a little more subtle than some of these harder substances that really really impact the brain but it's definitely there and and that sway of kind of up and down i've experienced that same thing and being able to kind of realize like oh this stuff really does impact not just my body physically but my emotional life my spiritual life because uh it, it influences all these different brain regions so I definitely agree with that. And then my other thought is, and I wonder what you think about this, is that, you know, I'm thinking about 300 years ago, or maybe, that we didn't have a lot of these very, very refined foods. And so maybe back then, I don't think there was as nearly as much obesity. Maybe we did get the sugar, but it wasn't available 
like it is today, where it's just everywhere. Yeah. No, I mean, what you're describing is my, may be my most favorite topic. I got into this 30 some odd years ago, reading a book called Sugar Blues. And I was totally fascinated by the history lesson of the growth of the English empire on the backs of slavery and sugar. And you're right. It was five pounds a year, three, 300 years ago. That's what the average person got for sugar. Now it's 150 pounds, right? And the money that they made on it and then the evolution of it into society uh, is such a, you know, there's no one alive that understands or remembers a world without it. And the answer to your question is statistically proven that before the 1950s, there was very little obesity. How when I was a kid, there was only one or two obese kids in the entire high school of 3,000. Right. It's like it, it really came in when this high fructose corn syrup came into the food system in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And it's, you can watch the obesity numbers go straight up and, and definitely. And the you know, people say, Mike, you should be a doctor. And I say, well, if I were ever to be a doctor, it would be a doctor of anthropology to study how we got in this mess because we're never going to figure out how to get out of this mess until we figure out how we got into this mess. And how we got into this mess was just a slow evolutionary process that got put on steroids in the 70s and 80s when more sugar and more high fructose corn syrup got added to the diet, right? And then we can see the outward manifestation in the obesity numbers, but what we lack and what really the last five years of science has proven is what we've discussed the whole whole event here is that it's what's happening to the brain and, and it's modeling and mirroring of substance use disorder. This is truly a substance use disorder. Anorexia and bulimia are process addictions, like gambling and sex, they're process addictions, right? But substance use disorder, as it's now, you know, named, is when you're ingesting a substance, and about a third of people biochemically cannot ingest this product. It's just been proven over and over by people in the know who have been working with food addicts for decades they cannot do it. And then there's another group of about a third that's harmful users. These are people that have right. forced it on themselves by basically having it everywhere in the food system. And when they quit, it's not as difficult as the addict, the, the true uh, sugar or flour addict, but it's still kind of hard, you know? Yeah. So there's there's different uh, tiers of this and, and people are uh, affected differently. Like, on a spectrum and yeah. some people are really, really going to have a hard time. Yeah. It's going to be really, really challenging. And then there's other, like you said, just it's in the, it's in the food chain. They're going to struggle with it may not be as, be as hard. And then there are some people that just are for whatever reason, their brain doesn't respond and they're able to, uh, yeah, they're the normies. We hate them. The norm- I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't quite get that. It's, it's but quite a gift, right? It seems really far, the, 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 far the, from another me. cruel universal jo- yeah. joke of the universe that they got the brain that wasn't as sensitive. Now, look, I actually, now that I understand it, I'm really happy to have my sensitive brain. And I think right. a lot of folks who get in recovery, uh, have the same types of sentiment. Oh, I don't think I know that a lot of people, once they get to the other side of abstinence, once they get to understanding all the things we've been talking about here, they're really happy, you know, because their processing power returns and there is magic in that brain and they're, you know, magic in that body. And they are really happy that they have discovered that they had been polluting it, if you want, for lack of a better term. What one of my uh, favorite coaches, my new coaches on my team says it was dimming their light. It was literally dimming their light. The, the, the gift that the God or the universe gave them has been stifled by this product. Absolutely. I mean, my personal experience is that when I'm not ingesting sugar, I sleep better. Yeah. I feel better. I yeah. feel more confident. I feel stronger, uh, stronger will towards success and, and to things that are meaningful to me. Uh, so I'm totally on board. And we and, call these not NSVs, non-scale victories. Yeah. Non-scale and, and, victories. And it really is. Yeah. Amazing. 
And, and one of the, the most, it's so interesting that, you know, you've uh, probably heard the, the saying, they come for the vanity, they stay for the sanity. Yeah. Every, everybody wants to lose weight when they come around, right? They're like, uh, you know, this is weight or whatever. If I'm getting too much, I'm getting overweight or whatever. But when they get to the other side of abstinence, I have this 90-day thing. No, I've never in my career doing this, thousands of people, had anybody get to 90 days of true abstinence and want to go back uh, or go back. Now, they'll slip occasionally or whatever, but they'll always come back because one of the things that the most important thing, and, and it literally ranks number one, is the brain clarity, the, the processing power, the, like you say, feel better, sleep better, process better, more motivation, get out of bed without, without being hungover, tired feeling. And all of those things outweigh the weight. You know what I mean? They're more important to the recovery per recovering person than the weight thing. And the weight's important and the health is important. And then we got a bunch of people putting diabetes two in remission, getting off what do you call SSRIs, depression meds, you know, with their doctor's assistance, not from me. I mean, have to make that kind of declaration, sadly, in this world. But they have gone to their doctor and, and taken the done the tests and done the consults and, you know, literally put type 2 diabetes in remission and all kind of maladies just disappear. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. And, and I can I can uh, hear your passion for that. And, yeah. and like you said, I mean, there are real consequences at the other side. There's real suffering here hmm. of, like you said, people who are struggling with type 2 diabetes because of sugar, a sugar addiction, and they're losing eyesight and function and and depression and all, all that stuff. I mean, there, there's real issues yeah. with this. Kind of hurts my heart mostly for the kids, right? Kids don't understand and they're mean. Not, I don't think they mean to be, but when a child is overweight, it really throws off the rest of their life in self-esteem if they're growing up this way. And, you know, we have an epidemic of five-year-olds with fatty liver disease. Can you imagine this? This is an alcoholic's disease, right? And, the, and obviously, we have an epidemic of overweight children. And children, they're not out shopping for food before they're five or seven right, or eight. Right. But the part that's hard for me is that we're not somehow putting two and two together here. Like you said, when I was a kid, there were no obese children. Literally, I don't remember one or I do remember one or two. But and forget about it. if you look at movies post 1950, the entire population, there's no it just doesn't look the same. Right. You know, we got in this mess for, you know, a reason which may or may not be relevant on how we get out. But we have to realize that the problem is not gluttony and sloth. This ridiculous brainwashing that the diet industry and even the health and the doctors have been preaching, you know, exercise more and eat less is total crap, total right. BS. A calorie is not a calorie. It's like calorie, the concept of calories needs to be destroyed. It's a ridiculous construct you know calories uh are a unit of energy medicine or me energy measurement it's not really what's happening to your liver and to your brain by these products so that's hard man i mean i'm really happy that you know allow me to talk and talk and talk on an hour-long podcast so that we can get this science out to the average folks because it just takes time. You know? Yeah. And, and what you were saying, it's interesting because there's been a lot of this idea of this willpower right. that it's just willpower alone. And I don't believe that. I, I believe there's willpower as part of it, but it's not just all, you know, you're just weak willed. You're just, a, you're just yeah. gluttonous. You're, there's a lot going on in the brain and, there's a lot of food manufacturers that, you know, want to, you to continue to uh, buy their food and they yeah. know how to make it that way. Oh, man, that's the, you know, you have a, an enemy in this, you know, I mean, and people say that about drugs and alcohol. Why doesn't he just stop drinking? You know? Yeah. And people say it about the food and the sugar. It's like, why don't you just stop? Right. And 
there is no shame in understanding that, like you say, there's an entire weaponized industry using the knowledge of the brain sciences against you and loading up the the foods you wouldn't even consider. Now, I'm not talking about candy and, and, and sodas. I'm talking about, you know, every kind of food that comes in a box or a bag or a can almost has sugar in it. Um, And so you don't, you know, without a little bit of eternal vigilance, you can't separate it. You can't split it out. You've got to be aware, A, aware that it's even happening and why and what's causing it, but B, to, to actually execute this process. And one of the things I like to tell folks, and this has been proven over and over, the founder of the Food Addiction Institute has a saying, it's like, this thing takes an inordinate amount of support, right? And yeah. the, the largest self-development program in the world called the 12 Steps grew not from the spirituality, not from the corny sayings, but from the community. And the community is different in every every city you go to in the world. The How the community organically grew is different. It doesn't really matter. The steps, the None of that stuff matters. What matters is that you're meeting with people who have the same thing that's going on with you and they want to change it. And that the, a lot of people who are outside of the little secret society or whatever don't really understand your relationship either to alcohol or to the sugar. They right. don't understand exactly they're, they don't, they're normies maybe, right? They're not really the same biochemically as you that when you ingest it, you get these cravings and you can't stop. And so they can't understand it. Like I didn't understand it. Or you probably didn't understand it, right? Until you ha- right. had yeah, a bunch absolutely. of folks that said, well, the same thing happens to me, you know? And especially in this society, mm-hmm. the majority of the people that we work with even their own family doesn't change their diet. So they're having a hard time, even in their own house, expressing their desire and wishes to do this. The other folks, their spouse, whatever, they're saying, why don't you just eat a little less? Why don't you have some moderation, you know? And like in alcohol and drugs, how did that work out for you? You know what I mean? It just like it didn't work out for right, me. I right, yeah. Like I'm not. I couldn't moderate crap. You know. So anyway, I, I get on my soapbox, but you get it. I mean, I just it's it. There is a little bit of a you know have to take what we've all learned and, and apply it, and you have to have some support to do it. Right. Absolutely. I know for me, once again, community has been a big part of the changes that I've had to make in my own life and going through stressors or whatever it is or wherever you're getting support, having a community behind you is tremendous. You can know everything. You can know all the science. <laughs> you can know all the all the stuff. And that still doesn't necessarily affect change. But having a community that can support you and and encourage you when you're making these, uh, when your brain doesn't want to cooperate, right. maybe. <laughs> you know, when these addiction things kick right. in and, and your brain's saying, go over there and get that. It's, and you have a community to say, hey, come on, no, stay over here. You're going to be better over here. So and being able to true, get man. Hey, look, there are now hundreds of peer-reviewed studies about things so far from addiction and food and drugs and alcohol that peer recovery groups in cancer uh, yep. cancer survival in heart disease or heart operations, that if you join a peer recovery group that did the same thing, your survival rates are higher, right? It's, it's, it's crazy right. out there that the community aspect of this kind of recovery, this peer, true peer recovery, and this is, you know, the things that we have borrowed from the recovery movement and from science and and research, peer recovery, harm reduction. I don't know about you, but I came up as an abstinence-based guy. Like I thought, figured, right. you know, and back when in my old days in Narcotics Anonymous, if you're using Suboxone or Mestadone, you were not clean, right? And today I have 180 degrees shifted because you got to be freaking alive to, to recover right. from opioids because that stuff will kill you possibly in one use, right? 
And so yeah. the same thing here with the sugar, right? It's like you need that peer group to kibitz with, to talk with. And a harm reduction, the same kind of thing, the suboxone and methadone. If you go 30 days with no sugar, you have literally lowered your inflammation and, and you, you know, you, it's okay if you, you slip, right? You're in this society, but, you know, you, you keep right. educating yourself. You keep coming back, as they say in the, you know, the rooms. But Absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your community and what you do and how you help people through this process. You know, it's become crazy magic. It, and, and I don't want to sound all weird on you, but, I mean, in creating, we had started before the pandemic, right? And... I had written pretty extensively on another website of mine and with a mentor of mine about the future of recovery and talking about the virtual world and how it will eventually play a role. And then, boom, we land in a pandemic and you can't even go to meetings or whatever. But we were all right. literally set up. It may be before the last time you and I talked. We had been literally setting this up for years and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And I'm sure you've heard of the pandemic 15, uh, similar to the freshman yep. 15, where people were comfort eating because they were locked in their houses, right? And so locked in your house, stressed out, out kids this. running and trying to go to school and Zoom and blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, just a life that was upside right, right. freaking down, right? And so we end up having Zoom meetings seven days a week. We our forum, you know, almost doubled in size, and we started, you know, having the meetings in person or on online. And it it really turned into like an explosion of success because people finally were meeting other people who were having the same issues and whatever, and they were willing. They had some time. They knew that they could, like you could either use the pandemic for good or for bad, being locked in and locked down for good or for bad. And we got all the people right. that were saying, you know, I don't have to go out. I don't have to eat in restaurants. I don't have to do this. I can take control of this. And then they did. And that's exactly how we've exploded in the last uh, 14 months. And And really it's like, what we do is we get you through the 30-day detox, but that's only the beginning. And I have a 30-day challenge that walks you through. I give you a video every single day. I come into your inbox. We have like zero refund rate, like zero. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like no right, one's ever right. asked for their money back because it, it's pretty comprehensive to walk you through the detox itself. But moreover... The detox is like the famous 90 and 90 in a, in a recovery program. It's like you get acclimated at that point to all of your peers in your, your forums, your, your, your meeting, you know, your online forums and your Zoom meetings. And you like feel like this is a better alternative than going for the cookies, right? And so you say, I need a meeting, right? And so you go to the meeting or you go to the forum and you just check in. It's really been just an exciting ride in the last you know, pandemic 14 or 15 months now to have been set up and be ready to help so many people. We're buried in the, in the logistics and yeah. the computer part of it, but the part that is consumer facing, the part that is the help, the forums and the community, that's doing fun. You know, that's, you know, that's just, that's, it's that's just amazing, awesome. really. And it, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big help, and it's exactly the definition of what you and I have talked about in the last uh, hour or so. It's just uh, all of those ingredients are there. So, Taking all of that research, taking all of that science, and then putting it in with a, a community of support yeah. to be able to walk through it. Mike, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on and doing this work, because I think food addiction and sugar addiction, although it doesn't get, I mean, it's getting more publicity and, 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 and talked about much more, does cause a lot of suffering for a lot yeah. of people. And a lot of people need support. And to know that there are places they can go to get support, get help, walk through it, find a solution and, and get all that. So I totally appreciate you coming on and, and sharing that. Where can people find you? sugaraddiction.com that's easy 
It's real easy, yeah. And there's a little thing that says 30-day challenge there. and Check it out. And uh, there's also a free book that we sold it on Amazon, but we brought it home and we give it away for free now. The Last Resort Sugar Detox, similar to, you know, it's like the last house on the block kind of thing. If you've tried everything, and, and most of our folks have tried over 10 different diets, uh, right. maybe, t- maybe take a look at this. Awesome. Thank you, Mike, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, man. Keep up the good work. I really believe this with all my heart that, and I've been working on this through addiction podcasts and people in recovery and people in my groups in recovery, that the people that are in recovery who get this could change the world simply because they already, I don't have to explain addiction to them. Right. It's the, the average person I have to explain just like you and I, at least me, I did not want to be an addict or an, an alcoholic. I didn't want to be those things. And it took a learning and, and cost me years of my life getting over that hump. And so I think that the folks in recovery can be very beneficial in changing the world around sugar. Awesome. Thank you, Mike, so yeah, much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Once again, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com and you can get the links to Mike Collins's website and all his information there. Quick reminder, leave us a review in iTunes. It really does help people find the podcast. And if you're really liking the podcast, share it with a friend. I definitely appreciate that. And think about joining our Facebook group. You just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.